Coming up today, Matt Reynolds explains why Africa has been spared the worst of the pandemic. Natasha reveals the middle-class private jet boom. And Matt Burgess looks at the worrying rise of police fingerprint scanners. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Matt Burgess. Hello. Natasha Bernal. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when Facebook and Twitter took action against Donald Trump and his inner circle after they bombarded social media with misleading election information. Twitter hid, deleted or prevented the sharing of scores of posts in a bid to squash engagement with false claims, while Facebook added fact-check boxes to some posts but didn't limit engagement. This was also the week when voters in California passed a measure that will see freelance workers continue to be classified as independent contractors in a victory for companies such as Uber and Lyft. It overturns a landmark labour law passed last year that ruled gig economy workers should have employee status and the protections that go with it. And it was also the week when we found out that up to 17 million mink are to be killed after a mutated version of the coronavirus was found in Danish mink farms. Several other countries have seen coronavirus outbreaks in mink farms, but this Danish case is particularly worrying as 12 people have become infected with a new strain of the virus that interferes with the body immune system in a way that might make vaccines less effective. And finally, this was a week where it was revealed a software error meant that 7,200 people in England were told to stop self-isolating on the wrong date. The test and trace flaw also came in a week when we found out the COVID-19 app was wrongly configured and didn't tell enough people to self-isolate. 17 million mink, Matt Reynolds. Yeah, I mean, to me, the real story there is that Denmark has 17 million mink. Apparently, they're the world's largest producers of mink. I don't know how many mink it takes to produce a mink scarf or something. But yeah, mink farms are not uncommon across Europe. I think Spain had outbreaks. I think maybe the Netherlands and France as well. We've had a few stories about COVID-19 mutating. Should people be concerned? I think if you're a mink and you're listening to this, you, you might be <laughs> concerned, although the, the, the impending cull is probably uh, worrying. No, it's, it's a really, really good point. I think that from what I understand, the majority of mutations that we've had, you know, viruses change over time. Um, they've been relatively small and they haven't really changed, you know, the infection profile or how it might infect, uh, you know, affect us. The worry is, is when a virus jumps into another uh, organism, another, another species, it changes quicker to adapt to that, that species. It might, it might change more dramatically. And if it jumps back into humans, it might come back into a, a slightly different form. So I think those are the kind of uh, jumps that we want to be worrying about rather than um, more general mutations that happen in, in, in population. So that's why this mink case is quite worrying. But actually, there's a very limited number of cases. So um, I, I wouldn't be too worried about that in the, you know, in the grand scheme of things. I think it goes to show how crazy 2020 has been when the culling of 17 million mink is likely to be a small footnote beneath even more bonkers things that have happened all over the world, almost on a daily basis. Anyway, what did we learn this week? Natasha, do you want to start? So in the last lockdown, I learned 
well, I honed my crossword skills. And this lockdown, I want to tackle Rubik's Cubes. So I learned that every single position of a Rubik's Cube can be solved in 20 moves or less as per the results of a bank of supercomputers at Google. But that's no fun. I have not actually managed to complete one ever. Uh, but it makes me feel better to know that it apparently took Erno Rubik himself about a month after inventing the cube to be able to solve it. So there's hope yet. I've got four weeks one cube, one mission to solve it once. <laughs> that's, that's my plan. <laughs> so we'll be checking in every week to find out if you've managed to solve the Rubik's Cube and how quickly you were able to do it. Is that okay? No, no pressure. It's genuinely going really badly right now. Um, I felt like destroying it yesterday, but it's very tightly packed. So okay, this I was is, not able uh... to dig my fingers in. This is Thursday, the 5th of November, so it's day one of the lockdown. We'll, we'll see how Natasha's doing in a week. Matt Burgess, what did you learn this week? Uh, I have an animal fact this week. Uh, I learned that goats have rectangular pupils. Um, so do some other animals, including sheep, but uh, I just like goats, so that's why I decided to pick on them. Um, and their rectangular pupils basically mean that they can see between uh, up to up to about 340 degrees in their peripheral vision so basically they can see pretty much everything around them except for what's directly behind them does that mean that it's really difficult to surprise a goat yeah probably unless you're like really stealthily coming up like directly in a straight line behind a goat uh, and making no sound at all um so yeah i think but then but goats also are quite easily surprised aren't they you see videos on the internet of them like somebody just going around and then they just like freeze and and still up and and like uh yeah become locked <laughs> locked goats i love it yeah okay you, um, just, you need to watch you need to watch videos of goats um, citation like needed surprised. um if you can follow up next week um with a fact check on your fact that goats are easily surprised um it would be be interesting to know more about goats matt reynolds what did you learn this week uh, so not goat related, or that might apply for, to goats, I don't know. I know that at least in the human body, almost every single cell is with 200 micrometers of a blood vessel. So that's about the width of two human hairs, which just goes to show just how many blood vessels you've got. Although every single bit is almost impossible to get away from blood vessels. Very good. Very scientific. I learned this week somewhat less scientifically and animal related that many medieval manuscripts feature illustrations of armored knights fighting snails as in garden snails nobody knows why but in um in the 1850s the bibliophile conte de bastard which is a real name theorized that a particular image of a snail was intended to represent the resurrection so we also learned that there was a bibliophile called conte de bastard but we are no closer to understanding why so many medieval manuscripts feature illustrations of armoured knights fighting snails. If you have any suggestions, podcast at wired.co.uk or speak right now, Matt Burgess. Um, it's more of a question. Are, the, are the illustrations, are, the, are they of um, giant snails or is it like somebody <laughs> with a sword fighting like a tiny... <laughs> <laughs> it really varies. Some of them are more kind of... Um, yeah, giant snails, or like even bigger than humans. Um, in, in other instances, the snails are quite small. I'd say they're all bigger than your average garden snail in order to be legible. Often these illustrations are in the margins, so they're, they're very small illustrations anyway, so I guess they had to size up the, the snail in order to make it um, visible. 
well, God. learn something every day. Yeah. You do. That is the Would whole purpose. Would you prefer purpose. to fight a giant snail or a hundred small snails, though? hundred small that's snails. That's the question. Maybe they were asking yeah, themselves that question. It's, it's, that, but then it'd be all over you, though. A giant snail would be so terrifying. It might, like, fall on you. Oh, are they so slowly? <laughs> or is its movement speed scaled up because it's bigger? I'm not sure if that's something... It would get slower, surely. Yeah, know. still the, the hundred small ones. You just step on them, really. Oh. Moving swiftly on. More swiftly than a snail could move on anyway. We've got a really good subscription offer for podcast listeners. We're going to keep this going for a, another couple of weeks. So if you want to take us up on it, please do now before it's too late. You can get the current issue of Wired magazine for the ludicrously low introductory price of £1. You then get the next six issues for the low, low price of £19. That's more than a year of brilliant Wired journalism for £20. This is a limited time offer and is only available to people in the UK. So if you really like the podcast and want to support what we do, then why not give the magazine a try? Head to wired.uk forward slash pod sub one. Matt Burgess, your time has come. It is wired.uk forward slash pod sub one. And that's the numerical one, P-O-D-S-U-B, numerical one. Please do take us up on the offer. It's a great magazine. Our first story this week, Matt Reynolds, is about a continent that we've not heard a great deal about during this pandemic, and that's because it's done rather well. What's going on in Africa? Yeah, that's right. So as our listeners uh, will be familiar with, we've done a lot of uh, we spent a lot of time comparing how different countries have responded to the coronavirus pandemic. But for this story, I wanted to take an entire take a look at an entire continent or at least most of it. So, as you say, James, talking about Africa. So at the start of the coronavirus pandemic, as countries across the world were shutting down in March and April, experts were predicting, really, that Africa would be next. Uh, And. A estimation by the UN said that COVID-19 could directly kill at least 300,000 people across the African continent and possibly as many as 3.3 million people. Now, to put things simply, that prediction just hasn't really come to pass. So as of the end of October, coronavirus had sadly killed 41,600 people across Africa. The majority of these cases have been in South Africa, which has seen nearly 20,000 cases, which is the 14th most of any country in the world. So on the whole, Africa is seeing many, many fewer cases than we expected to see. And South Africa is quite different to the majority of countries in Africa. So what's really happening on the rest of the continent if we put South Africa to one side perhaps? Why haven't deaths been as high as we thought they would be? Yeah, I mean a good starting point is obviously to realise that you know Africa is a continent of one point two three billion people or so. Um it's not an homogenous mass. Like you say, South Africa has seen disproportionately the highest number of deaths um in cases as well. So we've seen um, yeah, in Southern Africa, we've had the highest number of cases, and almost all of that has been driven by South Africa. In North Africa, that's had the next highest number of cases. But in East, West and Central Africa, we've seen significantly below the kind of levels of cases and deaths that we've seen in the South and the North. Now, 
The short answer is there's no one is quite sure why exactly this is, but there are a couple of trends that might hint at why deaths in particular from COVID-19 remain so low. So more than 60% of people across Africa are under the age of 25. And we know that age is strongly related uh, to health outcomes when it comes to COVID-19. So we know that if you're older and you get COVID-19, you're much more likely to have a you know, much worse health, health outcome than a, you know, a child or, or a teenager. So the median age in Africa is actually 19.7 years. If you compare that with Europe, it's 42.5. So on a really simple level, this is a lot more older people. Or, much higher proportion of older people in Europe. There's also a slightly more complicated thing that's going on, um, and it's that immunologists think that pre-existing diseases might be conferring some immunity to COVID-19 in Africa. So, you know, as, as you'll be well aware, COVID, um, Africa has a, a high burden of lots of infectious diseases, and this includes coronaviruses. Um, and it's possible there's some cross-immunity, because people on the whole might be more exposed to other uh, coronaviruses that might be essentially priming their immune system so it's able to recognise uh, COVID-19 and prevent cases from getting so so severe. So there's this theory that actually cross-immunity might be lessening the severity of cases as well. So we know from the very start of the pandemic that people with pre-existing health conditions, people who are older are more likely to get it and die from it uh, rather than recover. What do we know here about how many people have been infected given that their ages are so much lower on average than anywhere else in the world. Yeah, and, and this is really difficult because th- there's a problem, I'll talk about this a bit later on, that, that essentially, as we saw in the UK early on, testing wasn't really done enough, so we don't, we never really have this full glimpse of how many people have been infected. But what we can do, obviously, is we can look at people's blood samples and we can say, do they have antibodies against COVID-19? And that might suggest that they have been uh, exposed to the virus. So there's a few studies that give us a kind of glimpse of um, how, you know, how many people might have actually been infected. So there's one study uh, in Cape Town that collected about two and a half thousand samples during the pandemic peak in late July and early August. And they found that 40% of people tested had COVID-19 antibodies. And that's that's really high, actually. Um, you know, that's much higher than what we would estimate, uh, you know, a similar study in the UK would find. Um, between April, the end of April and mid-May, researchers also tested blood samples from more than 3,000 people in Kenya, and they found that 5.6% of people had COVID-19 antibodies. Uh, in Mombasa, nearly 10% of people, of donors, had antibodies. Um, but at that time, the official figures in Kenya stood at just over 2,000 cases and 71 deaths. So that suggests that something's going on. We can't have a city where 10% of people will probably have been infected, and yet cases in the country as a, as a whole are only around 2,000. It suggests that probably official figures are not capturing the true number of cases. And of course, like I said right at the beginning, that's something we've seen in many, many countries. So really, it's not that coronavirus hasn't come to these places. It has. So we've probably not seen the disease burden you would expect. But also, we still don't really know the true extent of the spread. Last week, we were talking about Sweden and or a couple of weeks ago, maybe we were talking about Sweden and its response to uh, to to the pandemic and sort of how that had differed slightly uh, from other countries. Um, So what do we know about sort of like how uh, different African countries responded um, on the whole uh, to to the situation that's been faced? Yeah, so as we saw, obviously, across much of the world in Asia and Europe and and America as well, um, lots of African countries have gone into lockdowns or curfews. So uh, across the continent, 
you know, up until the end of October, 34 of its 54 nations have at some point introduced a lockdown or a curfew in South Africa, which is the continent's worst hit countries. Um, officials declared a state of emergency and they imposed actually a really strict lockdown um, that shut borders and it also banned the sale of alcohol and cigarettes. That got a lot of um, attention at the time. Um, Obviously, what goes along with lockdowns and what goes along with these kinds of um, movement mitigation approaches is also trying to target interventions in terms of health. So um, from the outset, officials in South Africa have targeted uh, you know, hotspots with uh, high COVID-19 infection rates. And they, they, deplo- they deployed a kind of, you know, a small army of healthcare workers. There was 28,000 healthcare workers um, that were employed to test everyone to go to these hotspots and, and test them. And actually, unlike, you know, cities or places like Italy, uh, South Africa never saw um, the kind of overwhelm of its hospital, um, uh, you know, its hospital wards. So although the death rate there is quite high, it does seem that this kind of early testing and quite strict lockdown seems to have, um, you know, reduced the overall peak of the outbreak. Earlier you said Africa has a high burden of infectious diseases, which could provide cross immunity. I mean, one of the biggest problems that we've seen so far is that a lot of people were um, dying and were misdiagnosed as dying from coronavirus or not dying from coronavirus. What's what's the wider impact um, of what's going on here? Do you feel like the official numbers are actually reflecting what is going on on the ground, people who are dying potentially from this are being correctly identified as dying from coronavirus. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point, because like you say, you don't have to, you don't just look at the impact of coronavirus. Obviously, um, uh, you know, coronavirus ties up healthcare resources and also limits movement. It means that, um, you know, people that might Needing, needing vaccines, they don't get vaccines. There's a real, really big um, health burden that comes from this disease. So, what we and, and the way you look at that health burden is by looking at excess deaths, which basically says, okay, over the last five years, on average, this many people died on this day. Well, on this day in 2020, how many more people died than usually would? So that's called excess deaths. And in a way, that's a better uh, indicator of how severe things are than coronavirus deaths because it captures captures all kinds of things about people that miss cancer results or you, you know um, people that die because they can't access A&E or things like that. So we know that in South Africa, uh, from May to August, there were more than 33,000 excess excess deaths. And of those, only 9,000 of those were from COVID-19. So that leaves 24,000 deaths um, completely unaccounted for. And this is really, really important because it might be the case that there are a large number of unrecorded COVID-19 deaths, or it might be that there are all kinds of other uh, problems that we're not really seeing. So this might be deaths related to HIV. Africa obviously has a huge problem with HIV. Uh, it could be diabetes or other chronic illnesses because these are things that need ongoing treatments that people can't access. And the problem is, is if someone can't uh, access their retroviral drugs for HIV, they won't die you know, that week or that month, but they may well, you know, have real severe health outcomes later down the line. So sometimes these uh, deaths take a long time to appear. And we've seen this from other, uh, you know, infectious diseases before. So in the Ebola outbreak of 2014, research showed that 11,300 deaths from the virus had coincided with 10,600 excess deaths from other diseases, especially malaria, HIV and AIDS and tuberculosis. So there's really a problem here that actually Africa does have a really high burden of infectious disease um you know people do need uh, you know vaccinations against polio and and you know all kinds of other diseases and that if that starts to slow down we might see almost some of the worst consequences come from this these excess deaths that go along with the pandemic
But then there's also the issue of COVID-19. We don't know how widespread it is in Africa, in a lot of European countries or Western countries. We're seeing the prevalence of the virus manifesting in people that need intensive care beds. So that's why a lot of Europe is re-entering lockdown because of that terrible burden that's going to be placed on the health service that risks overwhelming it. That doesn't seem to be the case in Africa now, but at the beginning of the pandemic, when the WHO and UN warned that up to 3.3 million people in Africa could die from this disease, one thing they pointed to was that Africa was quite badly prepared in terms of hospital inventory if there were to be a wave that required lots of people being put on ventilators and being put in intensive care. And, and that's still the case. Africa does not have the capacity. So there is a risk. There are people who are vulnerable to this disease in Africa, many millions of people. Africa does have a young population, but one of the risks here is that the virus, as it has in Europe, goes from the young people who have a very mild disease, typically, into old people who are quite likely to need quite severe health intervention. So what does happen next. The virus is definitely in Africa. How do they keep it away from people who might get very ill and then Africa's in trouble? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a really, really good point. Uh, um, you know, what you're seeing now is that similar to the picture, maybe in Europe over the summer or a little bit later, you know, countries are now opening up again, right? And with this opening up, with this, you know, movement across the continent, uh, it's trying to come with an increase in testing. And testing capacity is really, really important because it means that we can try and think about how to target local, um, you know, restrictions, and it means we have more of a sense of the spread of the disease. But testing is still really not that, that adequate for a, for a continent of 1.2 billion people. So in June, the Africa Centers for Disease Control said it distributed more than 2.5 million tests across the continent. By September, uh, the total number of people tested in Africa had reached 12 million. But really, this is actually a very, very small um, level of testing when you compare that to almost any other, um, you know, part of the world. So I think, you know, the answer is really that those risks are still there, those health infrastructure problems, you can't really solve those overnight, right? Um, and, and, you know, your point on, um, you know, intensive care beds, that, that's, that's a huge problem. So across Africa, there's an average of less than one intensive care bed per 100,000 people. You compare that to the United States, that figure is 34.7 beds per 100,000 people. So I don't think it's necessarily likely that we're going to see a huge, um, spike in cases um, and things necessarily going really, really out of control if it does seem that actually cases stay fairly low because, it, you know, maybe you have a lot of asymptomatic cases because you've got a lot of young people. But I do think that, you know, when people get severely ill, that's the real problem, right? You know, it, we should be kind of looking at, well, what is the mortality in these most at-risk age groups and how can we kind of make those, um, you know, try and reduce that? I guess drugs are going to be a big um uh, benefit there and, and health interventions we can put into play but I think that the problem is is this is really going to be an ongoing problem and and if you have that vulnerability in terms of intensive care beds it's always going to be an issue as soon as you start getting large number of people being ill so I, I definitely think that we're not out of the woods by a long shot. Absolutely and something that didn't make it into the story which is really really comprehensive but we're looking at a whole continent this is only so much that you can include is future access to treatments and vaccines, there's a risk that we're seeing countries with the money and resource to place bets on a whole raft of vaccines, putting in orders for things that might not even come to fruition. In Africa, where budgets are tighter, that might not be the case. And there are concerns amongst local officials there that Africa risks being at the bottom of the list 
for future treatments and vaccines and that while the pandemic isn't bad now the long-term implications of not having widespread vaccine widespread vaccine rollout across Africa could be the knock-on effect against all of these other conditions that African countries are having to grapple with like HIV so it's not a simple problem of saying a, a simple solution of saying oh Africa's had quite a good pandemic so far it remains to be seen what the economic and health impacts are even if the death count seems low so it's not a simple picture it's a fascinating story head to the show notes for a link to read lots more about how the continent of africa has handled the pandemic so far and the challenges it faces in the future our second story this week matt burgess is about a worrying creep of fingerprint scanners in the british police force yeah, so a couple of years ago, uh, in sort of early 2018, and Matt Reynolds wrote about this at the time, actually, um, police in England started trialling fingerprint scanners that clip onto mobile phones. Um, these devices were put to test at the time to help people, uh, to help police try and identify people in the street. Um, however, over the last two years, their use has massively and quite quietly, to be honest, expanded to a point where they're being routinely used on a daily basis by, by almost all of the police forces in the UK. So to give you a couple of uh, sort of like headline stats before we go into some more detail, between September 2018 and May 2020, police forces have conducted more than 126,000 scans, uh, which equates to about 6,000 per month. Um, And 28 of 43 police forces have started using the technology since it was first trialled, with four more currently conducting their own pilot tests and seven others in the process of rolling out the technology uh, although they don't have access to it at the second. Um, And across police forces, the picture is very different in terms of the amount of use, Um, but uh, the UK... uh, the UK's and uh, England's biggest police force, uh, the Metropolitan Police, is probably unsurprisingly the biggest um, use uh, or sees the biggest use of these scanners. So between November 2018 and July 2020, uh, the Met Police conducted 51,000 scans, uh, which is around sort of 2,500 a month. And even during the lockdown period that we saw early this year, when there was a lot less people on the streets going outside uh, in London, scans uh, rose by sort of 88% compared to the year before. So around 6,000 fingers are being processed by the police every month. So I assume you get stopped in the street, told to put your finger on the sort of scanner thing, and then something happens. What exactly is this technology and how does it work? Yeah, uh, it's, it's a good question. And it's it's sort of like that, but maybe not uh, exactly like that in in practice so officially it is called a a strategic mobile solution uh, which is uh, obviously very catchy Uh, but in reality what it is is a smartphone attachment that connects to can connect to phones Um, and uh, obviously phones that we have have fingerprint scanners that are mostly used for sort of like security and locking of devices accessing certain apps or things like that Um, but they're not really good enough to conduct uh, fingerprint scans uh, that can be compared against a database of uh, thousands or millions of fingerprints and and then try to identify try to find a match um so the police are using this piece of technology which is effectively a small little clip on which you just put your finger on and it scans a much higher resolution um as a piece of hardware so they were introduced to help officers check the identity of unknown people and get results in like up to 60 seconds so pretty quick and effective in that in that measure um and that's really the the primary purpose of them is to check identity Uh, and police say that they should only be used when there is no other way to work out 
about who a person is. So it isn't a case of anybody who's being stopped is being instantly told, check your, uh, can you put your finger on this? Can we check your identity using this method? It's more of a case of this is supposed to be used as a last resort when uh, somebody maybe doesn't want to tell their identity uh, or the police may believe that uh, somebody is not giving their correct name uh, in a circumstance. But once a fingerprint has been scanned, it is checked against two government databases. Uh, One of these is called Ident1, which contains fingerprints of people who have previously been taken into custody by police in the past, and the other is called IABS, uh, which holds fingerprints of non-UK citizens who have entered the country. So more of an immigration status database that one is. So the sheer number of these scans being carried out is part of the story, and how little information there is out there about their use. So the figures that we've got here are all the result of freedom of information requests submitted by the journalist who worked with us on this story. But the scale isn't the whole story. There's another thing that's going on here, isn't there? Yeah, so amid the uh, data that was sent back uh, from these freedom of information requests, uh, there was uh, the question about who is being stopped in terms of uh, their ethnic groups. And it turns out that uh, the police, the data that is uh, being used, uh, or the data that we have around sort of the people that are being stopped and scanned, uh, shows that in proportion to populations, uh, ethnic minority groups, and in particular, uh, people who are black are being stopped and scanned more often uh, than other people. So in some constabularies around Britain, uh, black Britons are being uh, scanned uh, in terms of their fingerprints between three and 18 times more than their white counterparts. So we only have data from seven police forces that are conducting these uh, type of fingerprint scans um, from across the country. And that doesn't include the Met, which is obviously, as I said, the biggest force in England. Uh, But in all seven areas where we do have data, the data shows that communities of colour, especially black people, are being, uh, the volume of scans per capita was significantly higher than those of white communities in the same area. Uh, Devon and Cornwall Police has has the uh, highest disproportion of uh, black people that are being scanned which uh, is 23 times higher than white people however uh, the caveat on that is there is not a lot of uh, data around sort of the use of these uh, scanners so I think it was only a couple of hundred scans have been done in the last year so it's quite that is a very small data set Uh, but where there is more information uh, in the Surrey police force area black people were 18 times more likely to be stopped than white people and scanned than white people um, and which is the second biggest disparity in the country and in West Yorkshire which has got the lowest disparity uh, black people are still 3.4 times more likely to be stopped and scanned than white people Um, this obviously sort of uh, leans towards that there may be some sort of racial bias in in who is being scanned and who is being stopped and we um, and and as part of the reporting we included that um, having fingerprints in a government database is not an indicator of criminality necessarily uh, it may be included for sort of immigration purposes uh, and having a positive a positive identification is not proof that a client crime has obviously been committed this is just a method that is being used to try and identify people and not necessarily an indicator of success in terms of stopping crime um, and this I think what is particularly worrying as well is that uh, these sort of disparities in terms of uh, the the 
who is being stopped is a very similar picture to what we've seen in stop and searches across the UK and in that case particularly London. So recently the Metropolitan Police uh, was found to be using stop and search uh, wrong in many cases uh, and having multiple errors in its process and sort of legitimacy around this and essentially it's an area that for many years we've known uh, black people have been stopped a lot more uh, uh, proportionately in terms of population and uh, sort of this is leading to sort of like a lot more accusations around sort of racially biased policing and and techniques that are targeting communities that are already over policed uh, in in the country so obviously fingerprinting in some form has been around for a really long time and i'm guessing if someone gets arrested and taken into a station they'd have their fingerprints taken but this is obviously a really different application of 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 the technology and i guess it's in places where these people aren't being arrested or or accused of a crime necessarily how does this tie in with these other kinds of um slightly you know surveillance like policing you know can this be linked up with facial recognition you know what what does this say about how police policing is is shifting to a more kind of surveillance-based approach yeah, so over the last few years, we have seen, uh, I mean, quite naturally, sort of as technology has advanced, more technology creeping into uh, policing methods. And there is, I think, one of the key things around this and sort of all other types of uh, types of policing is sort of how the technology is being used in the real world and deployed and how it is being used uh, in terms of sort of effectiveness and part of the process. So whether it is something such as facial recognition or predictive policing tools, which can involve sort of uh, using data to understand where um, hotspots may be or risk assessments about people uh, in terms of their uh, potential sort of ability to commit future crimes and, and all of that that sort of thing. There are a lot of questions around sort of whether this is really proportionate and whether a lot of it works because as with sort of a lot of conversations that we've had on the podcast recently when we're talking about uh, sort of more uh, machine learning or AI systems, when you are when you have a lot of new technology that's based on data, a lot of this data has been created uh, from uh, sort of past actions which we have known uh, have been biased against certain groups have been uh, led to sort of like bad bad data produces bad results and it's, it's very much sort of in that same sort of vein of like how the technology is being used and around sort of like the creep of uh, technology into policing and whether it is just a case of this is being used because it can make uh, policing slightly more efficient or how that balances with the sort of like proportionality and sort of the overall uh, use of the technology and I think one of the people that we spoke to for this piece uh, was saying that this sort of method where you can uh, sort of have people's fingerprints scanned and say actually uh, we've got matches on 45 percent of uh, of scans that shows that the technology is working is that just a way of sort of statistically sort of analyzing how the technology is being used in practice uh, to say that yes it's legitimate use because we can say the percentages are good or bad uh, but then sort of how that translates into actually people's experiences of this on the street when you're seeing higher proportions of black people being stopped and scanned uh, using this technology so I think that it's all sort of tied into this idea of how effective is data-led policing and how and when should it be used proportionately. And as we've seen from the scale that this technology has been rolled out and the number of police forces that are interested in using it, is how technology can potentially lead us down a path to people who are already over-policed being even more over 
policed because policing becomes more efficient. So if you're able to very, very quickly stop someone in the street, ask for their ID, fail to get the ID, fingerprint scan, go into a database, it's a very quick interaction for the police force, but it allows them to have more of those interactions. So communities that are already having too much interaction with the police force that's perhaps based on racial bias risk being subjected to even more of that level of interference that's based on racial bias and enabled by technology that makes it more efficient. It is. And it's all about sort of uh, in, in a lot of cases with policing and sort of a lot of the conversations, most of them are uh, have, have been out of the US because some of this type of sort of data led policing technology is uh, more used over there, particularly in sort of like predictive systems. But uh, the big question is a lot of the time, is this just reinforcing uh, feedback loops of policing and, and how sort of things have been done in the past when we know uh, historically certain groups have been over policed, certain groups have been uh, subjected to um yeah uh, bad practice and, and 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 horrific treatment at the hands of the police and is it that just sort of reinforcing some of these uh some of these positions that we've already already seen in the past and yeah there are big questions about sort of the use of data within policing going forward and, and where it should be used and making sure that there is enough evidence to to say that this is the right sort of technology that should be used uh in these scenarios it's incredibly important story and one that's only really possible as a result of this data being brought to light. Do let us know your thoughts on that or anything else that we've talked about on the podcast this week. Email podcast at wired.co.uk. Our third and final story this week, Natasha, as England, well, the UK enters a period where no one is allowed to travel, uh, we're going to talk about planes. Yeah, so um, I have never taken a private plane, I will disclose that, nor have I ever been in first class. So uh, my, my level of understanding of what glamour is like um, is, is very low. But I wanted to ask you guys if, if any of you have been on a private plane or taken, jetted off um, into the sunset on a sort of exclusive um, private plane of your own. Ever. I only, only ever fly business. Hard rule. No, that's, that's, that... that's, that's not true. When I, when I, was, uh, when I was a kid, um, this was, I, th- I think there was a, 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 key, a key moment, the, the 9-11 terror attacks kind of put, um, put a stop to all of this. But when I was a kid, we went on holiday to Greece and I think it was my birthday when we flew um, and uh, my sister and I were allowed to go into the cockpit and the pilot and co-pilot showed us around all the controls and talked to us about their, their jobs and everyone on the plane sang me happy birthday. Uh, yeah it was a wholesome time the early 90s but uh no more I fear did you get an upgrade was that your Uh, first business class experience no it was it was one of those um package holiday kind of tin cans so I I don't think it even had um a first class or a premium economy class it was it was it was very much a tin can with some seats in oh anyone else any more for any more yeah I mean obviously private plane is my first choice and if I can't get it then business class um yeah naturally no I've never I've never gone on a a private plane that seems silly to me that seems uh you know a very very expensive way to get about I I just have this perception in my head that private planes are just for you know uh I don't know royal families and politicians and ultra rich celebrities but I guess you're about to undo my my perceptions of private travel right yeah that's right I mean obviously James James's story sounds 
like glamour to me, to be honest, because um, my, my idea of flying is basically EasyJet or Ryanair, which is pretty grim. But um, for a lot of people, uh, private jets have become the go-to thing. Um, a lot of very ordinary non-millionaires in the UK have been taking them during the pandemic to avoid rubbing elbows with the great unwashed. So the fears that going through airports and sitting in pressurised cabins with loads of other people will expose them to the virus have caused families to opt for rather luxurious flight experiences and have caused an unexpected boom in demand for private jets. See, this strikes me as really, really weird because what you're talking about is private travel to not necessarily the most glamorous locations in the world. And it, and it, it seems odd that you would be jetting into your private, getting into your private plane and then heading off to like Magaluf or, you know, I don't know, the Costa del Sol or something. So we're not actually talking about the, you know, the, the richest of the rich, right? These are not quite as expensive as I might be thinking. No. So, I mean, the, the glamorous experience is the same. You know, you have your, your different lounge, you have your drinks, um, you can, you know, take off whenever you want. Um, I mean, obviously there's a schedule, but it's it's less of a, if you don't reach the gate, we're going to leave without you kind of scenario. Uh, but but people at the moment think that it's very much worth the money. So in, we, we are talking about sort of average families rather than, you're right, millionaires or anyone who is super important enough to have their own jet on standby. So for this piece, uh, we spoke to a father of two called John, who booked his family a holiday to Palma over the summer through EasyJet. And when Spain was taken off the safe travel list in July, he decided to purchase a private flight home to Liverpool through a charter provider. We're talking about a sort of mid-size Cessna Citation XL jet, which is very snazzy, if you want to take a look. And the two-hour flight cost him £10,000. Now, John, he believes it was worth the expense. He says that his first impression seeing the plane was how empty it was. He felt so happy and relieved, he says, while he and his wife enjoyed a bottle of Sauvignon Blanc. His children had burgers and fries. So, like, very different experience from, like, peanuts in a bag and someone coughing over you and maybe a stranger sleeping on your shoulder, all of which may or may not have happened to me in the last five years. Grim. So this is a hugely growing trend. Because more people, like John, are thinking, this is actually a really good option for me. £10,000, no problems, next to no issues when it comes to contagion. Don't have to go through airport, don't have to go through all of the rigmarole. Can just rock up whenever I want and I have my private plane. While the commercial airline industry has been largely grounded following various global lockdowns, with outbound international travel from the UK set to be banned on Thursday... Private aviation. Oh, wait, this has actually already happened because it is Thursday. Lockdown has begun. Yeah, I keep on forgetting that it's not a sort of date to be worried about in the future, but in fact, it's already happened. So by the time you listen to this, you can't go anywhere. So don't get excited. Still, up until that point, private aviation soared among new customers. So many of them are families. And once the preserve of millionaires and A-listers, business planes have been taken up by holidaying households making, looking to make quick COVID-secure getaways. So a typical 90-minute flight from a major private terminal like Luton, to give you an idea, to a remote town in the south of France would cost you about £6,000. So um, not exactly affordable, but... Um, 
an option apparently for some people who save up. So it was in March when most of the planet went into lockdown that this private aviation sector started to boom. As more and more commercial airlines stopped going around the world, families began booking business planes to rush them home. So we were speaking to a Swiss charter managing director called Alan Lebusier, who said that such repatriation missions meant that his business tripled and in fact a lot of other people have been saying the same thing so um, a lot of what has been driving this push has been people booking family holidays for the summer 20% of passengers are children at the moment and the fresh influx of jet setting customers has included their pets so recent animals on board this company's um, planes called private fly have included dogs parrots snakes uh, one recent flight saw a family fly with 13 cats so those who might have gone on holiday with friends are now doing so with extended family and their pets to boot so um i guess you can do things like that you can take a snake on a plane uh there's a film that kind of suggests that's not a good idea but, but people are doing that um and, and that seems to be okay so definitely an option especially if you are you know you want a dead cert way to get somewhere just before we get a load of angry emails i don't think we're suggesting that um having ten thousand pounds to spend flying your family home from a week's holiday in spain is within reach of the average family i mean that's that's a lot of, i mean even even no. six grand is a lot of money what a, a few people seem to be doing is teaming up with friends and extended family so if you can if you can fill one of these quite small private jets then we're talking about prices that are comparable to first or business class so it's still pretty expensive but maybe if you need a special treat and you have access to the funds that it's something that a fairly well-off family would be able to do but this is no longer the preserve of the super super rich so just to get that out of the way before the podcast inbox falls up with people complaining that uh we assume that everyone has ten thousand pounds lying around which i don't think any of us do anyway um no. so they're cheaper than people think but are they safe like people think they are yeah so you're right obviously loads of families uh, did try to kind of cram in and spread the cost around but they, they are actually safer so th there is more to uh, private jets than just providing a means for well-off families to jet around the world during lockdown uh, and swerve two weeks of self-isolation upon their return which again is a huge factor was a huge factor that, that was influencing people's decisions especially over the summer the thought of having to take two weeks off work for a lot of people was hugely stressful as we saw when France locked down there were loads and loads of queues going to the border at the very last moment trying to with people trying to avoid that from happening so amid a deadly pandemic though it is arguably the safest form of long distance travel whereas a normal commercial flight contains around 700 points of contact from check-in to arrival it can be as little as 20 with charter planes so if you think about the amount of people that are going using private jets it it just basically narrows down your statistics of, of potentially getting this this deadly virus um so substantially that it becomes almost um, the, the safest option ever. So if, if you think about private terminals, it might have maybe 30 passengers in the whole day, according to the people that we've spoken to. So then your family are the only people in one cabin and private flying, because of the separation of the, of the seats, is naturally socially distanced. So even if you are using the same plane with another family you still can space yourself out sufficiently as long as there's enough seats so that you're not as close by as you would be otherwise on a commercial flight. 
Also, um, private jets offer those vulnerable to COVID the ability to travel. So a lot of passengers have been able to ask for far more flexibility. So people are traveling with oxygen tanks, people are traveling with big equipment, like, you know, um, who are disabled in wheelchairs, who have special equipment, are able to be accommodated a lot easier on these types of flights than they have been on commercial flights, especially during this pandemic. Now, we're seeing Europe and UK go back down into lockdown at the moment. Are the private jet people that we've been talking to, are they worried about this? Because presumably it's great having a private jet, but there's no point getting on a jet if you can't go anywhere. So what's, you know, is, was this just a, a freak of, of spring and we're not going to see this again or over summer? Or are they predicting that actually, you know, if, if normal plane travel is going to be much less common in, over the next year, are private jets, you know, thinking this is going to be an absolutely boom time for them? Yeah, so with actually with a lockdown imminent uh, and much of Europe closing its borders, they do think there's going to be a further spike. So um, it, it's an interesting scenario because a lot of people have been told not to travel, but business travel is still permitted. Um, a lot of other kind of travel is still permitted, um, depending on the conditions that each country sets. So they're expecting that the spike won't be as dramatic as the first time around because the local lockdowns and restrictions aren't as strict. So a lot of a lot of people will still carry on taking commercial flights uh, that are cheaper and more affordable. Um, because they can this time around but they do still think there's going to be an influx because between September and Christmas uh, they, they say it's normally corporate flights that dominate these private jets um, sort of activity whereas those clients are not flying now so they expect that that's going to be taken up by families who replace them um, who want to do things over the Christmas period who find themselves you know saving up across the year and they haven't really had any holiday and they think why not let's just treat ourselves uh, to an incredibly costly holiday so as airlines have slashed their schedules and reduced their routes that likelihood is more is 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 higher than ever before because the private jet industry has basically picked up that demand so if you think about some of the more cost uh, effective ways to get around Ryanair um, which is the the my airline uh, of choice unfortunately it's cut it's a third of its network this winter while EasyJet my other airline of choice expects to run at around about 25% capacity so if you think about the the options of trying to get a ticket you, you're scared of it being cancelled um, you're scared of it not going um, you've been desperate for a holiday you might not have had one the whole year this might be uh, an incredibly costly option that you might decide out of a moment of desperation, why not? So even as Europe experiences a second wave of coronavirus, private aviation remains relatively resilient, which is again a big difference between that and the commercial airline industry. As we've seen, they've, they've immediately, um, upon the first lockdown, came into great financial difficulties. We saw the collapse of Flybe. We saw British Airways asking for a bailout. Um, it, it's it's all not going very well for commercial airlines. So there's there's a huge um, nervousness that a lot of them will just not necessarily be able to provide the service that you want, even if you book it in advance. So although that's down um, by 20% on last year, it, we're looking at, at about paling in comparison to the commercial industry, which has seen its total flight numbers nosedive by half. So if you think about private planes versus commercial planes you might see fewer millionaires taking their holidays you might see fewer um, business people taking holidays but if you look at them by comparison it's it's genuinely shocking um so it, it, you can see 
Heathrow, for example, which is one of the busiest airports in the world, has reported an 84% fall in passenger numbers over the summer. Charter departures from July through to October 26 are down by a mere 8% in comparison. So if you are running a private jet company, now is a good time. Uh, (laughs) Comparatively speaking, not a great time, but still a lot better than if you're running something like British Airways. Unless you're flying out of the UK, where currently you're only allowed to fly for exceptional circumstances. I think there was a statement from the health secretary today, which shows just how depressing 2020 is. There is an exemption on the flight list for the UK for people traveling for assisted suicide, um, which kind of shows what kind of a year 2020 is. There aren't many reasons that you can leave the UK right now, but there's one of them. There we go. Podcast at wire.co.uk. If, like all of us, you don't have £10,000 to spend on a private jet or you're unable to leave your country because its borders are effectively closed, how are you going to be spending your holiday? I've got a week off coming up and I'm going to be sitting in my non-working chair and I'm going to do a bit of gardening. It's the simple things, isn't it? Podcast at wired.co.uk with your winter holiday plans. Time for a couple of your emails. Matt Reynolds, do you want to take on the first one? I will actually. I should. I should start by doing a shout out. I, I. I. On the topic of private planes, my. I'm in Italy at the moment, and my flight back to the UK from Rome was actually just cancelled. It was Ryanair. Natasha, I'm sure you're you're familiar with this experience. So, if any, you know, private plane owners, uh, you know, fancy doing a deal, James, I know you said that sharing it can get the rate down to first class. Could it get it down to like twenty pound per person? Do we know? Do we know how many people we'd need to cram into a private plane to get it to Ryanair level of of uh, fees? If you are a PR person for a private jet company, please do not email <laughs> podcast at wire.co.uk and ruin our credibility. Thank you very much. You can you can email me instead. <laughs> My email's on Twitter. Uh, but yes, uh, so we got some feedback on an unrelated uh, uh, No, We got some re- feedback from Lucas who writes, I've been listening to the podcast for more than two years now, so I thought in my duty, it, yeah, it is, it is your duty, to respond at least once to one of the many interesting stories you present. So Thank you for writing in. Uh, Lucas, actually, um, so he's originally from Greece, which, as far as I understand, is actually doing pretty well in terms of its COVID-19 response, uh, but currently lives in Stockholm. Um, and he was writing in to talk about our story about Sweden's response to coronavirus. He actually brought up a bunch of really, really interesting points that we don't quite have time to go in uh, into here. But he raises, he, he, you know, he ended on this interesting note where he says, I do not know how things are in the rest of Europe. But in Sweden, every citizen is administered for free four COVID-19 tests. And I've used two of them already in order to make sure I was not infected uh, during two illnesses he had during this period. So um, I know in the UK, I mean, I think you can really get unlimited free COVID-19 tests. But there certainly was a period a couple of months ago where people were saying too many people that don't need tests are getting tested. Um, Too many people that are asymptomatic are getting tests. So there really has been kind of pressure, even if it doesn't come from being time limited. So I guess I'd be interested in in Sweden, if you've up your four tests and you get ill what you know what kind of happens and i mean you know does that make people more likely to take tests um just in case or does it make people less likely to take tests because they see them as this limited thing so i'd be interested to know people in other countries how easy is it to get access to a test do you have to pay um if you come back you know two times in two months to people uh, stop you know having tests and stuff but you know interesting point on testing that i hadn't heard about I think something that the UK is trying to move towards, albeit unsuccessfully so far, is a future where 
everyone potentially has tests that they can take at home. So something that you would do before you left your house for the day would be to take one of these really, really quick 15 minute saliva tests, get it confirmed that you're COVID negative and then you can go off and, and have your day. Um, eventually, you might imagine that there's some sort of mass testing strategy where countries are able to roll that out. But what's happening in Sweden isn't something that um, that I've read about before. So that's that's interesting to know. Do let us know if the country that you're living in is doing something interesting with COVID testing. Um, there's always lessons to be learned from how other countries are handling this pandemic. Podcast.wired.co.uk. Our second and final email is from Rupert in Australia, and he writes in about the gig economy, which we talked about a bunch on the podcast and quite recently um, around workers' rights, Deliveroo, Uber Eats. So Rupert writes that he doesn't use Uber or Uber Eats anymore. He doesn't use Uber mostly because of COVID, but before he was weaning himself off because of what he says is an unethical business model. He doesn't use Uber Eats because the service charges between, in Australia, 5 and $7 for a delivery fee, as well as charging restaurants 30% of the food costs, which he says is pure evil. He says if Uber employed workers above minimum wage, gave them good benefits, allowing them to appeal any algorithmic firing decisions, and went back to lower fees for people who make the food and basically let them have a platform, then he might go back to it. Well, the bad news is, Rupert, that um, uh, a very um, very controversial piece of legislation was passed in California alongside the presidential election, which is still rumbling on with uh, uh, the result unclear. Prop 22 was the most expensive prop ever put on um, the legislative agenda in California. I think $220 million dollars was ploughed into it by gig economy companies. This is effectively the gig economy writing its own laws and then spending huge amounts of money to persuade people to vote them through and vote them through they have. So this is a piece of legislation that ensures that the gig economy will remain the gig economy. And we can already see the immediate impact on that in the uh, share prices of major gig economy companies going absolutely through the roof. This was a huge, huge win for the gig economy and a massive blow for employee rights. So do go and check out some of the journalism that's been done around Prop 22. It's a big story out of America that's been somewhat understandably lost amongst the absolute, I was, I'm going to say it, shit show that is the US election. Um, but there we go. Um, hopefully by the time you listen to this, there'll be a clear result either way and that all of the stuff that's happening now will fade and be a distant memory um on that note we'll leave it there thanks so much for listening it's been a pleasure as always we'll see you again next week goodbye bye, bye. bye.